Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Online Great Books. If you've made a goal for yourself to read the great books of the Western world, but have had trouble following through, check out Online Great Books. It's an online platform. You sign up. They're going to mail you a physical copy of the book that you're assigned that month. They're going to provide you a reading schedule and send you reminders on how you should read so you can keep pace. Then at the end of the month, you're going to have a online video seminar where you can discuss the book with other people in your group. So if you want to learn more about this, go to onlinegreatbooks.com. And when you're ready to sign up, use code AOM at checkout. You can save 25 percent on your first three months. Again, onlinegreatbooks.com, code AOM at checkout, save 25% on your first three months. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, since the beginning of the Art of Manliness, I've had at the top of the website um, as a part of my header, and he's also become basically an unofficial logo and mascot of the Art of Manliness. It's a bare-chested, mustached, bare-knuckle boxer. But that's not just any random 19th century bare-knuckle boxer. That is John L. Sullivan, one of the greatest boxers in the history of the sport. He was the last bare-knuckle champion, um, and he was also a gloved boxing champion. Uh, he only lost once in his storied career. And besides being a fantastic boxer, the guy was just larger than life. Just a character, just full of like virile masculine and energy. Um, and at one time, uh, during the 19th century, he was considered like the world's most famous person. He was America's first sports hero. The interesting thing about John L. Sullivan, despite his influence on the sport of boxing, despite his celebrity in the 19th century... Uh, there's really not that much out there about the man in his life. Um, so I was really excited to learn about a new biography that just came out about John L. Sullivan. Uh, it's written by Christopher Klein. The name of the book is Strong, Bo- Strong Boy, The Life and Times of John L. Sullivan, America's First Sports Hero. Uh, we're going to talk to him about his book. We're going to talk to him about the life of John L. Sullivan. We're going to talk about his storied uh, boxing career. But we're also going to talk about his deep personal flaws um, the man was a very complicated, complex figure. Um, we're going to talk about his personal flaws, his eventual triumph over those flaws, and we're going to talk about John L. Sullivan's lasting legacy on the sport of boxing, but uh, as well as masculinity and manhood in America today. Really interesting podcast, so stay tuned. All right, Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brett. Okay, so I'm really excited about your uh, your book, John L. Sullivan, Strong, the Strong Boy of Boston, um, because he's the guy that it's sort of like the unofficial mascot of the art of manliness. He's that old time boxer at the top of our website, and as I wanted to learn more about him and his life, um, I was surprised how very little is 
there is out there about John O'Sullivan and his career and his and his life. And I'm surprised because he was a huge celebrity and he really changed the sport of boxing. Um, why do you think there's so little about John L. Sullivan and why did you decide to write his biography? Well, the last major biography of Sullivan was done about 25 years ago. And I think part of the reason one hasn't been done since then is that, you know, boxing is becoming a bit of a dying sport. Um, you know, it seems to live on in, in movies and books more so than actually in the ring. And I think that generation of people who heard stories about Sullivan from their parents, uh, you know, have passed along as well uh, in the last quarter century. But I researched Sullivan for my last book, and what really drew me into him was being uh, a Boston guy was his Boston connection. He was born in the south end of Boston, and, and his nickname was the Boston Strong Boy. Uh, he was an Irish-American hero, and being an Irish-American, that intrigued me. And uh, just finding out what a colorful figure he was, I thought, you know, what a what a fun subject it would be for uh, for a biography. And the more I researched about Sullivan, the more I learned just what an important figure he is in American culture. You know, he is the first sports superstar. He's the first Irish-American icon. And, you know, we may think of him as this sepia-toned relic, but really he's very much a trailblazer for the modern age in which we live. So, you know, just seeing how important he is for how we live our lives and how sports is such a central pillar of American culture today, I really thought it was time to uh, freshen up the story. And, of course, you know, in the last couple of decades with the rise of the Internet, we now have these great tools at our hand to be able to go back and, even though a lot hasn't been written about Sullivan maybe in the last 20 years, there are uh, tens of thousands of articles that were written about him during his lifetime, and now you know, you can sort of research that um, right from your desktop going through all these old-time newspapers. So, you know, it's uh, it's a benefit that we have in terms of doing the research uh, now that you couldn't 20, 25 years ago. Yeah, that was the thing that struck me uh, about the book as I was reading about his life. Um you know, he was a larger than life character, uh, very colorful, colorful, complicated, but his story is sort of like, it was so, it was intertwined with like the rise of modern America, um, yeah. with the rise of sports that he, you know, he's, that the, he was living in the time when baseball and football and boxing were becoming national pastimes in America. He was living in a time when mass consumerism was coming alive and he took advantage of that. He was around when the mass press, as we know it today, uh, came around. And so it was just interesting to see how John L. Sullivan, interse- his life intersected with all these different aspects of American history at the, at the same time. Yeah, exactly. And, and I'm not really much of a boxing fan, per se. And, you know, I wasn't really interested in writing a boxing book. But what I was interested in doing was using Sullivan as sort of, um, you know, the a linchpin to talk about these different um, these different movements that were occurring in American history when you talk about the rise of celebrity culture and the immigration into America and sort of the, the gilded age with the wealthy and the downtrodden and, you know, how that might reflect on current times as well. So, you know, it was a great way to sort of get in and, and delve into all these different aspects of American history and American culture that, you know, still impact us today. Um, so let's talk about, you know, you didn't set out to write a boxing book, but boxing looms large sure. in the story. Um, 
I guess when, what I got from your book when I was reading it, there was boxing before John L. Sullivan and there was yep. boxing after John L. Sullivan. Can you talk about the state of boxing when John L. Sullivan came to, I guess, came to power? What was it like before and what was it like after uh, he became a celebrity? So before Sullivan, boxing is completely different than what we think of today in terms of the modern sport. It's really a bare-knuckled affair. So these guys are fighting under what was called the London Prize Ring Rules. So you would fight uh, without gloves, and wrestling moves were legal. Uh, you could certainly get in uh, a good amount of eye gouging and hair pulling. And so when you see these guys with these flowing handlebar mustaches, they didn't wear those into the ring. And they, they cut their hair really closely, too, because your opponent could very well just you know grab a hold of your hair and get in a couple of good shots if you were down on the ground. And rounds would last as long as one of the fighters was on his feet. Once he hit the ground, that would be the end of a round. So rounds could last three seconds. They could last 35 minutes. And fights would go on until literally one fighter just couldn't go on any further. And it was such a brutal affair and, and sort of a wash in corruption and gambling that it was outlawed just about everywhere in America. So whenever these bare-knuckled fights would take place, it was very much a cat-and-a-mouse game between the boxers and the fans and the authorities to try to elude any sort of interference from, from the authorities. So these fights would take place in the back rooms of saloons, or they might find uh, secluded islands. The backwoods uh, are places that these fighters would commonly um, stage their prize fights. And when Sullivan comes along, um, he really insists on fighting with the new rules that were being implemented then called the Marquis of Queensbury rules. And these are the more civilized rules of boxing, the ones that we're more familiar with today, where rounds are timed uh, to last three minutes. Uh, were, the fights would be done with gloves. There would be no wrestling that would be involved. So it was really, um, you know, uh, really a, a punching contest between the two fighters. And even though we think of Sullivan as being this bare-knuckle boxer, he only fights three times, three championship fights with his bare fist. And by insisting on fighting his opponents with gloves and with the Marquis of Queensbury rules, by the end of his career, um, he fights in the first uh, championship fight that was done with gloves. And ever since then, every fight has been done uh, with, with gloves on the hand. So, um, you know, he, he is not necessarily just the last of the bare-knuckle boxers. He's the first real modern boxing champion that we have. And and he did a lot to legitimize the sport, it seems. Yeah, yeah. And because by insisting on finding those gloves, it made it more socially acceptable, and that form of boxing was legal as well. So by the end of his career, they no longer have to you know, try to find some place in the backwoods to have their championship fight. His last fight that he has is a, in a 10,000-seat electrically lit arena in, in downtown New Orleans uh, where the media is there with the telegraphs, you know, at ringside, sending results throughout the country. Um, and, you know, it's completely out in the open and legal, very much similar to what you would find in Las Vegas, you know, today for a big prize fight. What I found, what I, one of the things I found interesting was... Uh, like boxing, it was sort of like a boxing was sort of like in a, a legal limbo at the time. Like it was yeah. okay for exhibitions. Like you can do exhibitions to display the manly art, right? But it, uh, if it, exactly. if it, if there was like it was known that there was money being bad, or if it got too violent, the police would okay, no, stop it. This is not no longer an exhibition. Uh, we're going to put a stop to this. 
yeah, it was sort of in that limbo with a lot of different um, aspects of morality during the Gilded Age, you know, where um, it was supposed to be a prim and proper Victorian society, but certainly, you know, corruption, gambling, prostitution were all rampant behaviors. And boxing was sort of in that limbo as well, where, um, yeah, you, you could stage these four-round exhibitions against another opponent um, under the guise of being these scientific exhibitions. But everyone knew that these were prize fights. You know, money was being gambled on it. The fans were coming to see someone get knocked out. And uh, whether that would happen or not often depended on um, whoever was in in the you know sitting in city hall and in charge of uh, the of the police in terms of how quickly they would enter the ring to stop a fight. You know they might get in there at the first sign of someone taking a big hit, or they just might wait till someone was knocked out. So you really never knew what was going to happen when you showed up at one of these boxing ex- exhibitions. Not only what was going to happen between the two fighters, or whether it was whether the police might get into the ring at any moment to stop the fight, too. Okay, so John L. Sullivan, he was a, f- a formidable fighter. Uh, I think he, he only lost once, right? Like one... Yeah, the one big fight was the last his last championship fight against Corbett was really his, the only defeat that he really ever suffered in the ring. And um, he, uh, like, so he had over, like, 200 victories in a 10-year stretch? I mean, it's something unheard of uh, today. Yeah. Okay, well, how, what made him such a great fighter? I mean, was he was he scientific about his fighting? Was he just just a one trick pony? Just went and just was just brutal with him. What made him such a great fighter? It was a combination of of speed and, and power. Um, he was not a classically trained boxer. He never took a boxing lesson in his life. Um, that being said, he did think about you know the scientific points of boxing and and, and claimed that you know he he. Had, sort of studied up on it and determined that he knew precisely the right point on an opponent's jaw to hit him, to knock him out. So, you know, he did think of it a bit in a scientific manner, but he certainly wasn't formally trained or had any sort of lessons. It really was that he just had such a, a powerful right that he could hit his opponents with, and he could deliver it really quickly. He could just get his punches off so quickly, and it said that he pounced around the ring like a tiger, that that combination of the speed and power would often overwhelm him, uh, opponents. And then after he became champion, really the force of his personality tended to intimidate his opponents too. And it was said that he often won his half his fights just by getting into the ring and staring down his opponent, that it tended to intimidate him so much that he really had that advantage, that psychological advantage every time he stepped into the ring. Um, so, as we talked about in the introduction of the podcast, um, John O'Sullivan came to rise the same time when we had the rise of um, mass media. There's all these newspapers, these sports dailies were coming to, uh, I guess, power. And one of the most popular sports dailies amongst bachelors in America at the time was the National Police Gazette. Um, this is a, a magazine we've talked before about on the site. Um, and it's just a, can you talk a little bit about the National Police Gazette and what effect it had on boxing and also about the owner of the Gazette at this time? It's Richard K. Fox, uh, another very larger-than-life character. He had a rivalry between John L. Sullivan, and it seems like that rivalry between Sullivan and Fox really fueled the popularity of boxing. So talk a little bit about the National Police Gazette and talk about uh, Richard K. Fox and Sullivan. The National Police 
the National Enquirer of its day. Uh, it was a weekly tabloid. Uh, it printed salacious stories about uh, sex and violence, and if it could wrap the two into a story, so much the better. Uh, so it covered Wild West shootouts and Native American raids and lynchings and often stories about uh, damsels in distress who might be uh, shooting guns at jilted lovers. And there were these elaborate woodcut illustrations inside, too, that um, often depicted um, these violent episodes or women showing uh, a scandalous amount of maybe their shoulders or ankles as well. And so it was a very salacious publication. And its proprietor, Richard K. Fox, uh, he also saw the growing interest in sports in America. So he, he added sports into the mix of the stories about sex and violence. Certainly, boxing very much fit in with you know the violence that he was covering in America. And he becomes sort of an important figure in boxing. He starts handing out championship belts and trophies. Uh, he sets weight classes, and inside the pages of the National Police Gazette, he would print challenges from one fighter to another. So in that way, Fox was sort of part Rupert Murdoch, part Don King. Uh, he's very much a powerful figure in boxing when Sullivan comes along. <clears throat> and there's an apocryphal story that the two are sitting inside Harry Hill's Gentleman Theater, one of the most famous um, haunts in New York in uh, 1881, uh, a couple days after Sullivan won a big match on the stage inside Harry Hills. And Fox uh, sees uh, Sullivan holding court and sends word to a waiter to have Sullivan come over to his table. And according to the legend, Sullivan roars back at the waiter that it's no farther from uh, him to me than me to him. If Fox wants to see me, he can come over to me. And that supposedly is a story that launches the dislike of these two guys that last for the better part of Sullivan's career. Um, now, like I said, that story is probably apocryphal, but we do know that the two men did meet in New York around that time period. Um, and we do know that they did take an instant dislike to each other, probably because they were just very similar personalities. They both uh, were Irish Americans. They were both very stubborn, bullheaded, successful, driven men. Uh, Fox was used to sort of getting his way by the power of the pen and Sullivan his way by the power of the fist. And they, they were sort of like two magnets with the same polarity, so similar that they were just going to repel whenever they got together. So from that first meeting that they had in New York, Fox then, he literally searched the ends of the earth to try to find opponents to take out Sullivan. He went to, uh, he imported fighters from England. He imported a fighter all the way from New Zealand. Um, and he never had any luck uh, getting Sullivan, uh, getting someone to knock out Sullivan. Uh, but despite how much they hated each other, it was a very mutually beneficial hatred because uh, with Fox's newspaper, Sullivan took on the starring role, and he sold Fox, uh, he sold hundreds and thousands of newspapers for Fox. And by starring in the Police Gazette, Fox really made Sullivan a celebrity too. So. The two, you know, as much as they disliked each other, this rivalry between the two really paid big dividends for both of them. All right, so uh, as we talked before, John L. Sullivan uh, is basically America's, and you could even argue the world's first superstar athlete. I mean, he's the first athlete to ever earn a million dollars. 
but what's interesting, I found it fascinating about him. He sort of laid the groundwork of what superstar athletes are sp- supposed to do, right? He sort of like laid yeah. the archetype. And one of the, the interesting things I found about him, out about John Sullivan in your book, was that he parlayed his fame in boxing to other arenas in the entertainment uh, arena. Can you talk a little bit about some of uh, Sullivan's, I guess, exploits in other areas of uh, the entertainment industry? Yeah, I find I found this really fascinating too because it really did echo, you know, what we sort of see with modern celebrities or modern sports stars who sort of blur the lines of the different arenas of celebrity. And um, this started off pretty early in, in Sullivan's championship reign. So um, a couple of years after he was champion, he signed on uh, to a, a, a living statuary group. So he would travel around the country, uh, appearing on different stages. Um, he would be covered in this white powder uh, maybe wearing just uh, skin-tight tights on him. And then he would sort of take these different poses in the forms of uh, Greek and Roman sculptures. It was called living statuary. And he sold out audiences, you know, just by people who wanted to come in and see him do these 24 different poses on stage. You know, they didn't really care about seeing John L. Sullivan, a boxer. They just wanted to see John L. Sullivan uh, in the flesh. And... That sort of launches this vaudeville career that he has for the better part of 20 years. And um, he goes on to star in different theatrical productions. Uh, later in his career, they, a, a playwright uh, pens a play specifically for him, with him in a starring role called Honest uh, Hearts and Willing Hands. And he toured around the country six, seven months, appearing on stage in these plays where, you know, he's a he was an okay actor, um, and at the end of the climax of each play, he'd get into the ring for a four-round exhibition. Um, and, you know, he sold out theaters around the country doing these performances. So he, he each year different did different plays, one year. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. 
I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Even appeared to Simon Legree in Uncle Tom's Cabin. One year he went around delivering monologues and reciting different poems. And he also would appear... Uh, he was hired by professional baseball teams to come and pitch exhibition games for them or to umpire baseball games. And they'd get seven, 8,000 people who would show up to watch a meaningless baseball game just to watch Sullivan pitch. You know, and, um, It was really interesting to find how people really just, you know, they paid good money uh, just to see him in person, not necessarily to see him in the ring. Also by The Strenuous Life. The Strenuous Life is an online platform that we created to help you put into action all the things we've been writing about in The Art of Manliness for the past 11 years now and talking about on the podcast. And we've done that in a few ways. First, we created a series of 50 different badges based around 50 different skills. There's things like public speaking, social skills, personal finance, how to be a better husband, better father. We also have hard skills like first aid, wilderness survival, self-defense, uh, emergency prep. We've got that. We also will send you a weekly challenge that will push you outside of your comfort zone in some way. And we also hold you accountable with a daily fitness check-in and a good 
deed check-in to get you thinking outside of yourself. And with The Strenuous Life, there's opportunities for you to meet up with other TSL members in your area to do this stuff together. We just had an enrollment in September, filled it up in less than 24 hours. Our next enrollment is going to be in January. So if you want to kick off the year right, check out thestrenuouslife.co. Get your email on our waiting list. We'll let you know as soon as enrollment opens up. While you're at strenuouslife.co, check out the program. We lay it out, all that's involved in it, what you get. And we also have lots of testimonials from members who've done the program as well. Strenuouslife.co, put your email on the waiting list. Hope to see you in January. And now back to the show. Yeah, I just found that just completely fascinating. And it just, uh, I think you did a good job capturing sort of the the celebrity, the birth of celebrity mania in America. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's amazing. People think about how our celebrity obsession today is something new and but it's been around for over a hundred years. You know, it's just, it's crazy. Um, so let's talk. So John O'Sullivan, without a doubt, one of the best fighters in the history of boxing, but the man, um, had a, a lot of personal flaws, like big, big time flaws. And, um, the one that haunted him for most of his career was his alcoholism, his drinking. Can you talk a little bit about John L. Sullivan's battle with the bottle and how that if, affected his personal life and how did it affect his career? Yeah. I mean, it, it appears that Sullivan was not a really big drinker until he won the championship in 1882. And then, you know, he's got people who are, you know, always wanting to buy him drinks and he opens up his own saloon in Boston and really in short order, he really develops a, a really bad drinking problem that really does take its toll on him. And he suffers through some very bad illnesses after some some drunken benders that he goes on a couple times. Um, he summons a priest to his bedside to deliver last rites. Uh, one illness in particular, he dropped 60 pounds and was thought to really be near death, and they were sending out bulletins by the hour in terms of how he was faring. Um, these drunken benders got him into countless run-ins with the law where he'd get into barroom brawls, or even one time he was... Uh, arrested for uh, punching uh, his horse out on one of the streets in, in Boston uh, in a breakup of his marriage. Uh, he becomes a very terrible alcoholic and comes home in these drunken states, and uh, it, it appears that he uh, took his work home with him and, and beat his wife on a number of different occasions. And in, in his boxing career, took his impact too. Uh, he showed up for one fight at Madison Square Garden. Um, you know, the place is sold out waiting for him to come into the ring. All of a sudden he shows up uh, stumbling drunk into the ring and telling him that, you know, he has a doctor's note that says he's too sick to go in to fight. But, you know, everyone could just visibly see that he was uh, uh, terribly inebriated inside the ring. So, you know, it took some shots to his reputation. It led to breakups with managers, led to a breakup with his marriage. And, um, you know, it, it was a big problem for him for 20 years. And then suddenly in 1905, according to him, he just um, calculated that he'd earned a million dollars and spent half a million of it on booze and decided to quit cold turkey. And, um, you know, it appears that that was true, that, you know, he, somehow he was able to just quit drinking just like that. And then in, later in his life, he became a temperance speaker, too. So, um, you know, it was sort of a redemptive moment for him later in his life. Yeah, I thought I was I was glad to see that because I've I've heard about John L. Sullivan's you know drunkenness and his you know wife beating, and I was glad to see he was able to turn it around 
at the end of his life. Yeah. Um, finally. So yeah, it is, it, like you said, it, your the biography, John L. Sullivan is very much like a, a redemption story at its heart. Um, another big flaw of John L. Sullivan that lots of other, uh, white men at the time had during the 19th century was he was a racist. Um, and I loved how you, you did a good job explaining, um, the, the race line in boxing which was white fighters would not fight black fighters. And it was particularly poignant with Irish-American fighters. Can you talk a little bit about the race line in boxing at the time? Yeah. Um, you know, in the 1880s during Sullivan's time, boxing was actually probably one of the more integrated, if not the most integrated of sports uh, in America. This is a time when, uh, you know, baseball is becoming segregated until that would last for, you know, 60 years until the time of Jackie Robinson. But, um, you would find white fighters and black fighters in the ring with one um, gigantic exception, that being for the championship bouts. So, you know, Sullivan certainly carried the racial biases that many Irish Americans of the day had to begin with. And then once he gets a championship, he really feels that it's his duty to keep a black man from ever wearing the championship belt. So he draws what he calls the color line and refuses to fight any black fighters um, once he became champion in the ring. And um, it appears that before he was champion that there might have been some matches that were set up and never happened, but the fact the, the fact is that he never once got into the ring with uh, an African-American or any sort, of, uh, any sort of black fighter. And later in his career, um, in the last couple of years, there was a fighter named Peter Jackson, uh, he was an Aboriginal fighter from Australia, and uh, he was certainly among the handful of the top contenders of the day. Uh, in fact, in 1891, he fought um, Jim Corbett, who would go on to defeat Sullivan to a 61-round no contest. Um, so we know that he was at least the match of Corbett, who would have who uh, ends up knocking out Sullivan. Uh, so we know that Jackson would at least have been a formidable ch uh, challenger to Sullivan in the ring, uh, but he flatly, when he invites uh, in 1892, invites uh, fighters to take him on, he specifically writes in his notice to the press that he will not fight any Negro fighters, and that would include Peter Jackson. Um, so, you know, that certainly was uh, among the, uh, you know, the dark episodes when you take a look at the life of, of Sullivan. So you just mentioned uh, James Corbett, Gentleman Jim. He was the fighter that finally um, defeated John L. Sullivan. Um, how was Corbett able to beat him? Was he just a was he more scientific fighter than Sullivan? Was Sullivan just out of shape and just drunk? Um, what what how how did he finally how did Sol how did Corbett beat Sullivan? Sort of sort of a combination of two. Corbett was a very different. Um, fighter and a very different personality from Sullivan. Now, Sullivan, as I said, never took a lesson in his life, but Corbett was a very technical, very scientific fighter. He had gone through a lot of training uh, at the Olympic Club in San Francisco, so he wasn't really a fighter who fought on instinct. He really was an intellectual type of fighter, and uh, we talked about in the book that, that Corbett and Sullivan actually fought an exhibition um, a couple of years before they met for the championship. And even then, according to Corbett, he was sort of uh, feeling out Sullivan. And 
he would purposely put himself against the ropes to see how Sullivan would uh, uh, sort of give away his punches. So, you know, he was thinking about fights rounds and rounds ahead where, um, you know, Corbett was sort of viewed fight as, uh, as a chess match. Sullivan's approach to fighting was that he'd, he would just be like an elephant that would come and just trample right over the chessboard. You know, it was all about power and brawn and getting right on top of your opponent right from the get-go, uh, whereas Corbett's thinking three, four steps ahead. So they did have these very different approaches, and I think the scientific approach that Sullivan brought in, uh, that Corbett brought into the ring served him well in the fight. Um, but it was true that Sullivan comes into the ring not in his peak condition either. You know, he is uh, uh, 33 years old. Uh, he had not fought in the ring in a championship fight for three years. His training leading up to the fight was not all that rigorous. Um, he had all these other activities on the side. So as he's training for the fight, he's also rehearsing for his new theatrical production that's going to start in the weeks after the fight. Uh, he's finishing up an autobiography. So he's not throwing himself you know, full throttle into the training and uh, – you know, he's uh, he's still a little bit out of shape when he shows up in the ring with Corbett and manages to put on a good fight. You know, hangs in there for the better part of an hour and 21 rounds. But ultimately, Corbett, you know, is a younger, uh, more in shape, more thoughtful fighter. And I think that ultimately uh, is the reason why he ends up uh, emerging triumphant in that fight. And what happened to Sullivan's career after the defeat? Did he sort of put boxing on the back burner and devoted more time to his acting career and his, I guess, just as a career as a celebrity? What did he do with the rest of his his life? Yeah, I mean, he sort of uh, becomes this professional celebrity. So he does have this fallback option where, you know, he has been, uh, at least for the three previous years, been going around the country starring these theatrical productions, and he continues to do that. And, you know, he flirts every once in a while with getting back in the ring and, and fighting in a big championship fight, and every once in a while calls out these other fighters. But, uh, you know, he did not like training at all. You know, he liked to indulge in food and drinking, and he sort of threw himself into that big time, you know, after he lost to Corbett. And, you know, I think he knew that he never was going to put the effort in to really get into the fighting shape that um, that he wanted to be. And so a lot of these challenges, I think, were a lot of bluster that came from him. But he still did appear in the ring uh, periodically. He would fight uh, in different exhibitions against fighters. Uh, mainly, you know, these weren't real, real fights. You know, he was just getting to the ring for what different charity events and touring around the country. He actually um, toured with some of his former opponents, and they'd put on these different shows around the country. So, you know, he kept in he kept in in the boxing arena for a good almost 20 years after he lost that championship fight, but you know, he he still was one of the more famous men in America even after he was no longer the title holder because uh, you know, people just knew the great John L and and the Boston Strong Boy and he still was touring the country and showing up in towns cities all all around America. So, you know, he really was just this professional celebrity there for a long time. Yeah, I love there was a, a song, a vaudeville song written about him called I Shook the Hand That Shook the Hand of John L. Sullivan. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I just, I love that line. Um, okay, so his boxing career just sort of fizzled out and sort of 
spent the rest of his life uh, doing the celebrity thing, acting. Uh, he became a temperance advocate. Um, he also settled down with another woman, another wife, um, and he adopted his son. And he kind of became a farmer. I guess that's what he would describe, a country right. gentleman. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, his life sort of comes full circle at the end, you know, as, you know, a lot of life stories tend to. You know, I think, you know, as people mellow of age and they sort of take stock on where they've been, I think Sullivan sort of did the same thing. Um, you know, he was, uh, you know, 51, 52 years old, and um, he had given up drinking for a couple of years, and then he strikes up a romance with a, a childhood friend of his, and... Um, gets a divorce from his first wife and marries this woman, and they buy a farm outside of Boston. And, um, yeah, Sullivan sort of writes those wrongs. You know, he, uh, you know, he is this temperance advocate. Um, he did have a son with his first wife, but uh, he wasn't there when his son was born. He wasn't there when his son died suddenly at the age of two and a half. And by all indications, uh, he never even visited the graveside of his son, and that was, you know, just a, you know, a, a terrible thing when you, when you look back at that. But with his second wife, they bring in this orphan and, and adopt him, and bring in an, another friend of a close, uh, another young boy of a from a clo close friend that was going through health problems. And by all accounts, he was a great father figure to these boys. The kids uh, that lived around him on the farm all loved him, and he was great with the kids. And you know, he does settle down to be this, this farmer and, um, you know, also to bring the story full circle. His parents, you know, emigrated from Ireland in the wake of the Great Hunger and the, and the potato famine there. And um, the most bountiful crop that Sullivan is able to grow on his farm outside of Boston turns out to be potatoes. Um, you know, and I think it sort of shows that journey of... Uh, so many Irish American families went through from the terrible hunger in Ireland to ultimately success here in America. All right. Um, time is coming to an end. Uh, last question. Um, besides boxing, what legacy do you think Sullivan had on, I guess, manhood or masculinity in America? And I love the idea that Plutarch puts out there that biography should be used for moral instruction. Is there any lessons that you took away from the life of Sullivan as you researched and wrote about him? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, and you know, he is sort of this icon of masculinity and, and, you know, I think even though you may not know much about Sullivan or even necessarily know his name, you, you probably know that image of the, you know, the bare chested handlebar mustachioed, uh, figure that's, that is sort of an icon for, uh, for masculinity. And, you know, I, I, I sort of think, you know, there are obviously, when you examine any sort of life, those are those qualities that you admire and those that you want to take instruction from. And I think the thing about Sullivan that made him such a fascinating character to me was just the way that he attacked life. And he was very much this Teddy Roosevelt kind of figure, and it's no surprise that the two men actually um, struck up a bit of a friendship because, um, you know, they sort of threw themselves into everything that they did. You know, there wasn't anything that they did half-hearted. Um, you know, anytime Sullivan was in the ring, the minute that the fight started, he put his full effort into it, and that's sort of the way that he approached life as well. 
you know, is, is that he really lived life at full throttle. And you can't say that, you know, there were too many wasted minutes during the course of the day uh, when it came to, to John L. Sullivan. And, you know, there's sort of a popular saying of the day that, you know, any man would sort of give 15 minutes, you know, give anything just to, to spend 15 minutes in the skin of John L. Sullivan. And I, I think that's true for the most part. But then you do take a look at these uh, black marks on, on sort of his life being the the racism, the way that he treated his son, the way that he treated his first wife, um, you know, the, the drinking problem that he had. And, you know, I think you look at those as, as instructive moments uh, as ones that, when you look at your own life, you certainly you certainly wish that you do a better job as a father, as a husband, um, you know, in, in terms of how you live your life um, with with your family. So, you know, I think those are instructive for us. But I, I do think there really is this powerful energy that was around him and just the way that he attacked life is something that, you know, we sort of, want to try to emulate in, in everything that we do. Well, very good. Well, uh, Chris, it, it, was, it was a fascinating discussion and it's a fascinating book. Um, I wish we had more time to, to delve into the life of John L. Sullivan, but uh, thank you for your time. And I'm going to encourage all my readers to go out and get his book. It's The Strong Boy, The Life and Times of John L. Sullivan. Chris Klein, thank you so much for your time. Brett, thank you. I appreciate it. Our guest today was Christopher Klein. Christopher is the author of the book, Strong Boy, The Life and Times of John L. Sullivan, America's First Sports Hero. You can find that book at Barnes & Noble and on Amazon.com, and I highly recommend you go check it out. It's just a fascinating read. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you go on iTunes or whatever service you use to listen or download the podcast and give, give us a review. That would help us out a lot. And until next time, stay manly. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.